it's working for me what I respect right well it's been a very long time since the Lamorist and uh, brief explanation may be in order for where I've been and why I'm coming back and for how long essentially I've just been waiting for a last opportunity for the 300th limo list and or well, not exactly waiting but just leaving it unfinished in case there should be some special opportunity and uh, in the interim I recently in the process of completing the big mother the technology or the technological body of evil book that uh, I've been working on this year on the request of my publishers Aeon uh, I ended up <clears throat> looking into serial killers and specifically into Ted Bundy much to my surprise while finishing up uh, writing the last part of Big Mother and uh, so that led me to various different places and specifically to uh, George who I discovered via the farm Steve Snyder's podcast has done a great deal of research into Bundy anyway I felt this needed at least a little bit of introduction explanation because uh, the context for my no longer podcasting and doing very little online writing and the more or less closing of the horticulture site is, is the Land Made Man project it's me uh, working in Galicia to create a self-sufficient lifestyle and uh, that is ongoing uh, there's a great deal of renovations that still need to be done or extensions built and so on uh, but we did just get four chickens we're waiting for the first egg uh, harvest and uh, even thinking about getting goats so all that's happening and all of this was uh, the enactment of the exit from hell which I felt was uh, beginning after the what I thought would be my last book so it might seem as though I've, I've done an about turn not only am I, am I releasing two more books the Kubicon uh, spring of next year and Big Mother towards the end of 2023 um, but they're a kind of uh, parapolitical uh, psychosocial research books that more or less fit under the rubric of mapping how I do feel that they're also a departure in various ways and that Big Mother is shaping up to be the uh, swan song that I wanted 16 maps to be I, um, I'm hopeful that this is the most outstanding work that I've done but it's a little too early to say but certainly it's uh, it's unique in its approach and uh, rather like 16 maps of hell there was a similar tra trajectory at the end which is as I thought I'd pretty much finished I ended up taking a detour into the very darkest areas in this case not Ed Gein but Ted Bundy so as I wrote in a recent newsletter you can take the boy out of hell you can't so easily take hell out of the boy and I definitely found that there are still areas of my psyche that need light being shed upon them and uh, that's mirrored by 
the areas in society which uh, I find that my pen, mightier than the sword, is 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 coming to bear upon in a kind of literary attempt at justice, which is to say readjustment of false narratives or the uh, uh, abolition of them even in order to replace them with more accurate representations of reality so that's more or less the context of this three and a half hour conversation with George uh, and Thomas about Ted Bundy and towards the, the end also about Donald Trump and the elections and stuff like that I've I've broken it into two parts uh, so you can find the second part at the same site that you found this first part I think that's all I have to share uh, this is the Limitless the podcast between for perhaps a penultimate iteration and now here is this conversation funny you know got us on email in my inbox like damn i just got an email by jason horsley i really kind of made it in the conspiracy community now well that's a bit ironic because i'm still not sure i made it <laughs> <laughs> right well it was as you know as you both know i suppose it was prompted by an unexpected um immersion in ted bundy well, first of all, serial killing, which I had no idea, no plans to be looking into that stuff. I was just finishing a, a book and that was about technology and consciousness, really, but but evil also. And uh, I just I just used serial killing or serial killers as an example right towards the end, of because I wanted to illustrate something about uh conspiracy the conspiratorial viewpoint versus the mainstream viewpoint and how um both are limited in different ways but obviously uh, consider the conspiratorial conspiratorial viewpoint to be less limited and less limiting but and i wanted to show how it was necessary to at least start with the conspiratorial model even though i think there's a deeper place that one can go or needs to go so anyway so i just used serial killers as an example i thought it was going to be a paragraph and it turned into about three or four chapters on serial killers and then specifically i got pulled into ted bundy for whatever reason so that was how i discovered uh george by well so two two ways independently i mean i discovered the CAVDEF site, but then I also discovered George's talk with with uh, Steve Snyder at the farm. I didn't realize it was the same person at first. So, um, yeah, so that that's basically uh, that's my story. And what I what I wanted to talk to to George about really was um, 
Ted Bundy and the, just all of the anomalies, really. Yeah, yeah, there's a, a lot of fertile ground there, you know, and I initially, you know, I got into reading Dave McGowan's book program to kill that was my introduction to this whole thing. And, you know, I, I sort of had a lot of you know, shifts on over the years, you know, at first, I was like, well, there's some interesting stuff here. But I feel like Dave's going a bit overboard, you know, some of these connections seem a bit too far fetched to be true. But kind of amazing thing about a book like Program to Kill is that you can, you know, see all these anomalies that get brought up and you try to check them for yourselves. And by and large, not only do they check out, but you actually end up finding even more stuff beyond what was covered. And you start realizing that it's actually even weirder than you initially began and start constructing an entirely different picture of the, you know, to the consensus reality. And it's, really still mind-bending to this day how virtually every prominent serial killer case you find you know the there's so much that's completely at odds with what everyone believes and the people will think you're completely out of your mind for saying it but the, you know the evidence is right there often in very mainstream avenues if you just go and check it yeah yeah well Dave McGowan's book which is surprisingly absent from bibliographies I noticed uh like even the book I just read, the Bernard East one on Bundy, which I thought was going to be quite revelatory because it, it was the description was in the dramaturgy, the behind the scenes Bundy. Uh, it didn't get into any of that stuff and it didn't cite McGowan's book in the bibliography. So it just seems as though there's a kind of conscious or unconscious consensus to ignore that book, even though it's all because I suppose it's so persuasive when you see all of that evidence just lined up side by side you know case by case so and I read that book many years ago and I mean I've never had a problem as you guys can both probably guess and maybe a similar I've never had a problem with the conspiratorial mindset like as soon as I you know I was 20 or something when I discovered May Brussel as soon as I heard that Jonestown might have been you know, something very different. I just immediately, not not believed it exactly, but I didn't have any resistance. So I was immediately open to, so so that's the way I am. And I've written about why, because I think I grew up in that background where I was aware that there was always something going on behind the scenes. But, but as we know, most people don't seem to be open to that. Um, and and so what, what interests me around this is, is that tension between what is easily observable behind the scenes if you just do the research as they say or or if you just find a good resource like McGowan's book where the research is all presented but if you even for somebody like me if I then spend some time looking at a specific case like Bundy's uh, and then I'm reading some of the mainstream stuff I do find myself not exactly vacillating because I can't forget what I know but just having a lot of cognitive dissonance yeah because just just reading the points of view of people who absolutely believe or at least claim to believe in in the official version of Bundy, uh, you know what I mean. It, it really does. It's, it's it's easy to see how those mainstream narratives uh, still have the power to persuade. Oh, because it's so uniform. It's so you know just it's it's everywhere and just repeating and and everything and like you said there's just like two different like there's a wall up where where uh the evidence and and you know this whole this wholly different picture that comes out when you just look at the 
evidence in its raw form. Uh, it exists in the in this uh, behind this wall with you know, you know where where you have hidden or obscured by this uh, narrative. It's kind of similar to the Columbine High School massacre, where you've had so many books and movies and uh, documentaries, news features uh, that uh, tell the same story of these two disgruntled teenagers. And then you look at the police files and it's just hundreds of scores of positive uh, eyewitness accounts saying, you know, that they saw more than two shooters and they remembered who they were. They were giving IDs, the same IDs. So it's just another instance where you have this whole different uh, story that you have the narrative versus, you know, what really happened in the evidence and the documents. And it kind of uh, brings up another uh, recent uh, media feature, uh, Netflix's Ted Bundy tapes, uh, which again, just completely ignored all of the evidence and uh, pushed the narrative uh, it uh, starred uh, Hugh Ainsworth, who is a journalist that, uh, quote unquote, journalist that has a long history of working with the CIA, you know, and, and, and so, you know, that's 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 kind of, uh, yeah, when you look behind these media features as well, you can you can see the mechanics of this network that builds a narrative and reinforces it, instills it. Right. Yeah, well, I suppose that that's the key there is, is this adherence to narratives and that we all have that to one degree or another. Some of us like more complex narratives than others, um, but there's a complicity right, in individuals to want to have a tidy narrative, to, to, to go along with anything that helps them to, to create a tidy narrative. And to some degree or another, that always involves excluding data doesn't it so i suppose that maybe that's what i'm getting at here and we're just talking very general now because i do want to get to the specifics but it's probably a good enough intro that um uh in, in order to create a coherent narrative you have to exclude obviously some of the data so as probably i don't know thomas is what you've been into so much but certainly from what i know about what george is into uh, if you keep following the evidence or gathering evidence, there's, there's literally no end to it. So at a certain point, you do have to stop, even if you just because you die. But I mean, hopefully before then, you have to stop because you want to. You do want to create a counter narrative, making me think of Oliver Stone and JFK now, which is maybe it's not a good example. I don't know, but maybe it is. But obviously, he simplified the whole conspiracy behind JFK because he had to, he only had three hours and his excuse was, well, I need to create a counter narrative to, to contrast or to push back the mainstream narrative to, 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 to whatever degree I feel that researchers like us are doing something similar. We, we, we can't uh, just focus on the evidence because the evidence is meaningless if it doesn't form some sort of coherent narrative and in order to form some sort of coherent narrative we have to limit it and arrange it in such a way that it's coherent coherent enough to to push out or to to counteract the mainstream narrative whether it's netflix literally you know turns and all these ted bundy movies that uh, as thomas is saying that just constantly reinforces I guess two things. One, specifically the, the story around Ted Bundy, the idea of who Ted Bundy was. And secondly, people's uh, need for very simple, simplified narratives and their, their reliance on that, you know, their complicity with dumbing. 
the narratives down. Right. And, you know, to some extent, you know, those who are trying to challenge consensus are always at a disadvantage. You know, the the official investigations are done, cases have been closed. You know, the regular citizen, you don't have that much power to go out and find people and get records. You know, you can try as hard as you want. It's something that I've personally worked at for a while, but your avenues are limited and you're off, you're only able to get, you know, a fraction of what you could have gotten if you know you had been in the position to you know make people talk and get as much evidence as you wanted in the first place and that so ultimately you're you ha- you're basically assembling a very incomplete picture out of a you know more scattered set of data in the first place and you can get if you're lucky you can get enough solid data to show that there are clearly problems with the official narrative but it often leads you to an unsatisfying place for a lot of people in the mainstream where you know if you believe the lone killer narrative that you're getting through shows like Netflix, you know, it may have tossed out a lot of the real facts, but at the very least, it seems to be a complete and cohesive narrative. You have, you know, an explanation. It's, oh yeah, Bondi did this. He killed this per- person and this person and he did it on this date. And, you know, you have, you can, tra- you know, track the alleged movements. You can know exactly what he did in all these cases and you can just tidy it up, tie a nice little bow on it and you're done. Whereas, with this, if you start challenging these things, you kind of have to be comfortable living with the uncertainty. You could say, well, the evidence doesn't seem to add up to Bundy doing it, but then you're left with the question of who did do it. And trying to disprove an official story can often leave you in an unsatisfying place because having to get your own replacement story is a lot more difficult, you know, a lot more difficult than it seems and a lot more difficult when you're the one who's trying to reinvent uh, narrative that most people's minds have already been shaped yeah well i i uh i don't feel confident i mean it's partly why i want to talk to to you guys now is i don't feel confident uh trying to come up with a, a coherent narrative around bundy but um i do feel confident about uh describing or telling the narrative reinforcing even the narrative around the deep background of somebody like Bundy which as we all know involves organized crime drug and child and uh, prostitute trafficking sex trafficking um, pornographic movies snuff movies um, military operations intelligence agencies SIL etc whatever else I've missed out of that general overview right there's there's so much evidence for this deep background uh and and the kind of crimes that bundy were accused of fit very i would say even quite neatly into into that background uh and then secondly that if if we look at and this is what i want to do today if we look at ted bundy's the official story and and the charges and whatnot and the so-called evidence we can see that it does not add up including his own testimony. So so my approach is just if I, it's enough to juxtapose those two things, that there's a coherent deep background for, for the crimes attributed to Bundy, which makes more sense of them than the official Bundy did it version, and then the official Bundy did it version doesn't add up. So when, I think when those two things get close enough together, there's a sort of gravitational pull, and for me it's, it's, it's easily sufficient to just say, okay, um, you know, these a lot of these these women did die. Terrible things did happen. Bundy was somehow close enough to 
definitely have been involved. Um, therefore, it stands to reason he must have been somewhat consciously involved in these larger networks. Right, exactly. So, um, so yeah, so that that that's my idea for today is is to because for example, uh, George, you've done your talk with the farm. So if this does become a podcast, I can link to that. Also, the Cab Death site, like people who really want to go into the minutiae of um, what Bundy might have been involved in, uh, that's been covered elsewhere, and they, you know they can be referred to that. What what I was interested in today for personal reasons, but also to make it possibly of more wide, widespread interest is to, is to look at the Bundy official version, like, you know, chronologically piece by piece. And just, I just want to get both of your views on, on the various different details and the various different victims and uh, just help me to, you know, hold it all together in my mind. Yeah, of course. Uh, where do you want to start? I mean, I guess the major sort of crime series, you know, with Bundy, you know, begins, I mean, there are a lot of murders that, you know, may have happened before, you know, even, but, you know, certainly the Pacific Northwest is where it seems to have begun officially as far as, you know, what everyone can agree on. Yeah, 1974 obviously is the official year, but I I thought we could start with 61 with the alleged, or the possibly alleged, or the sometimes alleged killing of Anne Burr. Yeah, I mean, that was one that was alleged for a long time. Uh, but I'd say that there, there really has never been all that much evidence pointing to it. I think, you know, even there have been recent DNA tests that couldn't, you know, really couldn't confirm any sort of link at all. So it's something that I'm personally a bit, du- bit dubious about, you know, and it sort of seems like that's the that's what often happens. You know, once they catch a so-called serial killer, they start trying to link, you know, start trying to link other things back in time so they can tidy up the case. But I, I don't discount it, but I can't say that I've seen much of any evidence that makes me really think that Bundy was, was connected to that. And so you don't put much stock in the supposed, uh, admission that he supposedly made to McKenna I think it was yeah I mean even with uh, I mean McKenna is obviously you know when he talks about Ted Bundy you know he is I mean he's filter the way that he filters that narrative really uh, you know he adheres to the idea of Ted Bundy being a lone killer you know he talks about Bundy being acquainted with satanism at some point at some point in his writings but then basically spins it as well bundy went off on his you know bundy went off on his own and started killing a bunch of people you know started killing all these women anyway uh, on his own you know not with anyone else so he's basically upholding the official story of bundy as this you know mass this mass killer mass predator and even as he's supposedly introducing something subversive into it so you know Kenneth McKenna needs to be taken with much of a grain of salt as well, you know. Yeah. So I don't, I don't, I don't discount, you know, the possibility of, you know, Anne Marie Burr being one of Bunny's victims. You know, it's in all honesty something that I have not studied a ton. It's just the sort of, it's just the sort of thing where, you know, there 
it, it often becomes an article of faith among a lot of people, even though there's really not a lot of evidence. And it only becomes an article of faith in the first place because of the, the serial killer narrative that is manufactured uh, in the first place. And then people go back and come up with these circumstantial linkages and it becomes such a, a very prominent deal in people's collective minds. Because it's not it's not highlighted down the thing, but nor is it suppressed. I mean, I'm, I'm using Wiki as, as a useful source for the mainstream narrative, obviously. And uh, so Wiki has it has a does link that killing to Ted Bundy, even though it's saying it's inconclusive. So do you think that? Because it doesn't seem it would be particularly helpful or necessary to to just try and tidy up that case by by blaming it on Bundy, if you know what I mean, to close the book on it. It doesn't seem like much of a strong motivation. But in terms of creating the idea of the serial killer, oh, he starts young, and do you, do you see it as possibly part of reinforcing that that the uh, the, the generally accepted uh, model of the serial killer. Yeah, I think that you hit on a very astute point there. I think that that is often what, you know, an, a part of it, you know, that they, to create this idea that it's a, you know, per the motiveless machine, you know, that they are driven only by their internal demons, you know, and this, if this is Bundy at a point before he would have reasonably, you know, reasonably had much else going on in his life before he hooked up with, you know, all these, you know, political connections and, you know, connect and you know connections to uh you know, groups like lds before he had the freedom of mobility to travel you know all travel all other place be in law school you know all those things a murder like this you know clearly has no potential linkages to anything you know it just you know reinforced the idea that he was always like this and it's all because of him and also obviously supplies you know also i mean given the fact that it's a, a little girl as well which is generally outside of the types of victims that Bundy had except for the very last person who he was convicted of killing Kimberly Leach in Florida this mm -hmm. also would have certainly helped to bolster that you know pro that sort of profile of him you know something that otherwise seems to break the accepted pattern of the victims who he would have targeted so that's another sort of thing that might be you know you know served by having Anne-Marie Burr believed to be a Ted Bundy victim. And, you know, again, it's, it certainly is possible, you know, but it's sort of, it's an interesting pattern where, you know, a lot of these, there were other victims as well who initially were assumed to be Bundy victims because they circumstantially fit. There was a, a woman, uh, Catherine married, well, not a, not a woman actually, also a, you know, an underage girl in the Pacific Northwest, Catherine uh, married, Mary Devine, who was killed in 1973, very much appeared to, you know, seemed like she might fit the profile of a Bundy victim and was generally assumed even by Anne Rule to be a Bundy victim for quite some time. And then ultimately it was linked by DNA to a different person, William Cosden. So, you know, that, that sort of, th this sort of thing where, you know, a victim can appear very circumstantially like they were a Bundy victim, you know, is not sufficient, certainly not sufficient on its own. And it can be very tempting to use these to sort of backfill the profile of Bundy that has been uh, propagated throughout the mainstream. 
So this is I was bringing up a more general question then right at the start, which is um, the line between these kind of, let's say, program killers, just to keep it simple, um, being created versus recruited uh, or coming, you know, sort of, yeah, being being um, shaped from, from early on versus uh, being being sought out and recruited, if you see what I mean. So, um, well, I'll just keep it specific because that is very general. But in the case of Bundy, ha- have you found any evidence that in his early years in childhood that he had any any proximity to military uh, bases or anything of that kind? Yeah, I mean, there is one sort of thing, uh, an it comes up in FBI files and it's not verified by, it's not verified by any means. It's not, so, you know, it could be very well be, you know, a sort of BS story, but there was a, a woman named uh, Janla Carr, you know, C-A-R-R. Uh, and basically she came forward in 1991 and was telling the FBI that she believed her father uh, named Thomas Dowling Carr was actually Bundy's biological father, and that he was actually, uh, and that he actually would, you know, would sometimes remain, you know, that sometimes, you know, the Bundy's family, even after he sort of, you know, abandoned them, would sometimes Bundy's mother would still, you know, go and meet up with him. And so they'd still see each other from time to time. And the way that uh, Janla would describe her father is that, her, you know, her father would, you know, hypnotize her. She claimed, she also claimed that Bundy himself at some point, I believe in his youth, would be hypnotizing her, like to forget about the family, you know, about the family connection that they had. She did, she actually claimed that, you know, at one point, Bundy, you know, while, when he was living in Tacoma as a teenager, stole a car so they could drive back out to Pittsburgh and see the, you know, the family, the Thomas Dowling Carr family was out there. So that was that was one thing that always stuck with me as a possible, you know, early kind of, you know, contact that Bundy had with these potential, you know, programmers, if it's true. And I don't know if it is. Even the, the FBI agents who did look at this, uh, you know, who looked into this, actually, they looked at a picture of Thomas. They said it, it, it does look like the published photograph of Ted Bundy and believed that she did say that uh, her father was her father basically told uh, Louise basically told uh, Louise Cowell Bundy's mom that uh, you know he that his name was either Lloyd Nelson or Jack Worthington, which do match up with the name with the names that were you know one the name that was basically believed to be the name used by the biological father of Ted Bundy. The mother at one point even changed her name, uh, even changed her son's name to have the surname of Nelson, even though it used to be Cowell. So that, you know, th- there's definitely details within the statement that match up, you know, but it could also just be an, someone with, that uh, Janla was an avid reader of, you know, stuff on Bundy. And that's how she got this information. Then she just backfitted her story to fit that. Certainly can say that there was a very weird relationship between Thomas and Janla, you know, that supposedly Janla hated her father, but he also let her live with him even into her adulthood. 
then she ended up uh, going, you know, ending up getting killed in a train accident, supposedly throwing herself in front of a train on, it was like January 30th, uh, 1997. And her father believed there was some deep conspiracy behind it. And he was obsessed with proving this conspiracy. He was claiming that, you know, a top political aide of a gubernatorial candidate in, I think, uh, Pennsylvania was involved. And then he himself later allegedly committed suicide like a year to the day after her, uh, his daughter's death. So something weird was going on with this family. Could have been a connection to Ted Bundy. And this is like the earliest indication that I can find of maybe something weird in Bundy's life. But, you know, that's you know, sort of murky territory you get into when you try to understand the early life of Ted Bundy. Very interesting, though. It uh, ties into that's really really interesting, and it ties into the all the mystery around Bundy's uh, fatherhood, and you know Anne Rule indicating uh, in her book that uh, Bundy's father was you know this uh, mysterious kind of identity that was not known outside the family, and whose identity becomes more blurred with every year that passes. You know there was this real mystery around. Uh, Bundy's uh, family history, you know, and and uh, his, uh, I believe, his stepfather, uh, uh, f- from where the name Bundy uh, came from, Johnny Culpepper Bundy. Uh, he he was uh, employed at a um, army and uh, navy facility, uh, ostensibly as a civilian cook. Yeah, that's a good point as well. You know, and obviously it's a big military complex up in the Seattle area and you know, will does continue to show up, you know, in connection to some of the other victims, uh, you know, supposed victims of Ted Bundy down the line. Uh, so that's another, you know, certainly, you know, by the time that Bundy was getting into his, you know, adult years, you know, the, his contacts in places like, you know, going to, when he went to Stanford at one point to suddenly have an interest in studying the Chinese language, which virtually screams some sort of intelligence interest. And later Bundy's, uh, you know, sort of, father-in-law, uh, an LDS member by the name of Dr. Russell Hurst, uh, the, the father of his girlfriend at the time, Liz Klopfer, actually gave a statement to police about how Bundy knew a lot of foreign languages, which doesn't seem to be part of the official narrative uh, you know, that you usually hear about Bundy. That doesn't seem to show up, so, but it is there in police files. So the question is, how did, you know, how did Bundy pick these up? Where did he pick up all these other foreign languages? Yeah, and certainly that is also indicative of potential intelligence training. So it, there are some you know, tentative signs that Bundy may have been getting groomed into it from a very, very early point in his life. But at the very least, by his adult years, uh, when he was going to university, it appeared that he was drawn into that network and also drawn into political circles as well by being an, an aide to the, uh, the gubernatorial campaign of Dan Evans and basically being a covert operative for the campaign. So the line can be a little bit blurry between whether they're, you know, made that way from the beginning or whether they're drawn into it later on. But Bundy has shades of both and certainly could be going back all the way to the very start of his life.
What's your sense then in terms of when when he first started killing? You know, I mean, I I will say that, you know, I I don't have any particular issue believing that, you know, he had these sorts of uh, impulses, you know, from a young age, which is why, you know, I don't rule I don't automatically rule out uh Ann Burr as we talked about as well. You know, I think that you know, the, the mainstream perception that people have of serial killers, you know, of course, is, you know, that they start killing due to their own interpersonal demons. And 
course, the program to kill theory, you know, is all about the idea that they're, you know, made mental, you know, that they're manipulated by force, external forces into this. But there really is a sort of nuance there where, you know, all sorts of, you know, mind control is kind of a spectrum, you know, in a way. And, you know, the experiences that shape you in life, Bundy having a very sort of, you know, abusive paternal figure, uh, for, you know, his, his grandfather was said to be a very, you know, an awful figure who was horrendously abusive, would terrorize his family, abusive family was, would terrorize animals. And for some reason, Bundy himself, you know, looked up to his grandfather in glowing terms, which, you know, is rather interesting that he alone out of the family would seem to view him that way. But this sort of, you know, this sort of view on human life can be internalized from a young age. And, you know, that the idea, it's not, it does seem likely to me that the way that Bundy was raised resulted in him picking up these sorts of impulses. And then when you later run into a, uh, you know, run into these other networks or you get steered into these intelligence related networks, then you have this existing propensity for violence and it gets put to use for a very specific purpose. And I think that's what's true of a lot of these, uh, you know, program to kill subjects. We're talking about Bundy, Dahmer, all any other others that Bundy, in my view, was probably killing from about, you know, his teenage years, I would say, but, you know, committing murders that were, you know, just solely for these personal reasons, really unconnected to anything else. And I think that at a certain point, when you get down to 19, you know, the 1970s, when his actual, you know, the official serial killer uh, progression started when those murders that really became the public murder that were initially linked to Ted Bundy started. That was when he the killing started to be most likely for a reason other than just internal, you know, the internal, you know, troubled nature of Bundy himself. So I think that is, you know, that the serial killers can kill for reasons that are their own, but can also be purposed to kill for, you know, deeper reasons as well, or purpose to be part of a murder for you know that's part of a much bigger picture and i think bundy is an example of that do you think that they like to get away for, with it for very long if it was just being driven by personal demons yeah or certainly not at the prolific you know not in a prolific sense i mean if there were i mean obviously you know back i mean back in the day you know go, if you go after vulnerable if you go after vulnerable you know vulnerable victims you know, you, you know, in a certain case and you, you, you to leave no evidence behind, you know, that there's the possibility of getting away with it, but not in a, but not like doing it again and again, you know, especially at that age, you know, mm -hmm. being sloppy is likely. So I would not be surprised. You know, I have a feeling that Bundy, you know, at least experimented with it, you know, probably once or, you know, once or twice. I don't think that he was doing it, you know, at a very, a very high level until it got to 1974 for whatever reason. And then suddenly, of course, the murders attributed to him exploded. Mm. So yeah, I think that it was more of a, you know, if he was involved in killings back then would have been more of a, you know, personal sort of, you know, curiosity indulgence and may have had some sort of fantasization about it as well. But I certainly do not think that it got to that level, you know, of being, you know, a, genuine died in the wool, you know, serial killer, as he would be called until we get to the Pacific Northwest murders in 74. 
there's also kind of a distinction between you know like uh when he started the killings when he became kind of a killer type when that became his uh function perhaps uh you know and uh some earlier involvement in the network that would ultimately guide him toward that uh, function or serving that function. Uh, you know, his uh, Sam Cowell, the uh, grandfather who was uh, yet yeah, terrorized, uh, terrorized the family and, uh, and everything. He was a deacon in the Methodist church. And of course, Bundy's stepfather was employed at that uh, military base uh, was also very much involved with Methodist uh, church activities. Uh, you know, Bundy himself was a, uh, vice president of the Methodist Youth Fellowship. And of course, you know, while there's no obvious uh, direct proof that therein, you know, you have this combination of uh, military bases and uh, kind of, uh, you know, the uh, evangelical churches or, or major Christian churches, you know, it's a often a cover for intelligence operations. So I, I think that a lot of times these guys are, are, born into a kind of a network or apparatus that, you know, is, is so pervasive, but uh, they only become groomed for, you know, that, you know, becoming, uh, becoming a killer pro programmed killer operative courier, you know, whatever the function might be uh, later on, you know, similar to what in MK ultra, they talk about uh, graduating from one program to another, graduating from the big graduating to the big a, which was artichoke. Some of the victims testified that, about that you know so oft, oftentimes it's like you know they're 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 in this uh they're within the reach of this network possibly from the time of uh their birth or from very early on and then right. i think they they get uh yeah they later get groomed to, to to serving some purpose some of them may start very young i mean you know i i believe i recall you know the sunset strip killer douglas clark uh claimed that he was a assassin going back to his adolescent years so you yeah. know and his his family was naval intelligence. Right. Yeah, because there's a two way uh, attraction there. Uh, in the obviously these kinds of agencies and operations are looking for foot soldiers, but also somebody who has personal demons and those kind of fantasies who's been driven maybe to act on them, but is is frightened and appalled by it is going to possibly uh have a relief response and even a gratitude response if they start to get the sense that there are there's a context in which they can uh, act on those urges and they won't be yeah. they won't be condemned for them and on the contrary they'll be they'll be employed and so that the urges will become um justifiable justified yeah exactly and that sort of thing too, you know, a lot of, you know, MKUltra projects and, you know, projects done by the CIA and also especially the Office of Naval Intelligence, there was a project that uh, Lieutenant Thomas Narut of the, of the U.S. Navy talked about, and this is in Program to Kill, where they were taking these convicted violent criminals in these military prisons and, you know, trying to, you know, desensitize, you know, desensitize them, you know, even further to these, you know, acts of violence to see if they could be used essentially as, uh, you know, program killers to be sent on these missions at the behest of the, the military command structure. And there's little doubt that the same thing was happening as part of MKUltra in civilian prisons as well, uh, you know, at ver various hospital, mental hospitals and, uh, you know, facilities all across the country. So there is a value really in taking a person that already has 
these impulses and just needs them essentially, you know, with a little bit of grooming of these impulses can actually be turned into, you know, you know, do, you know, having it be, you know, an, a sort of reactive emotional response under certain stressors to make, you know, molding it into a more fundamental aspect of their being. And then of course, using it as a deliberate weapon instead of having it come out, you know, randomly. I think that there a lot of, you know, there's definitely a value for a, you know, a government that wants to have these kinds of assets under their control to potentially be uh, taking people who already have this propensity and uh, developing it into a, a foot soldier for themselves. Mm. One of the things that I found compelling in, in reading about Bundy is, is this idea that he had to acclimatize himself and desensitize himself to become efficient as a killer. Now that's obviously um, coherent with what what you're talking about there, in terms of training training killers, and obviously that's you know, that's what military organisations have done for thousands of years. Um, but in the context of a supposed serial killer or a psychopath, uh, and in the way that Bundy talks about it. it Obviously, he's not talking about other people training him and desensitizing him. He's talking about him doing it himself. Like he has to commit a number of murders before, in order to um, just learn not to suffer t- horror and remorse at the acts. That's uh, something that, that um, what's his name, Kenneth McKenna, talks about as well. Um, that, I mean, according to McKenna, it wasn't until. Healy, which I think was the first Bundy crime that he got charged with, I'm not sure, that went on record, whatever. But anyway, very early on in 1974, uh, McKenna was claiming that that was, according to Bundy, that was the first time that he actually um, didn't suffer remorse after killing somebody and that he felt liberated by that. Whether that's exactly true or not, uh, it it, does a, it has a ring of truth to it to me that somebody like Bundy would, there would be a, a process by which they had to hollow themselves out and desensitize themselves so that they were able to be fully efficient as a killer. So when I read, um, for example, his his the conversations that they turn into the Netflix documentary with, with um uh, Hugh Ainsworth, whatever his name was, the only living witness, and the conversation with Ted Bundy. Uh, it's 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 kind of frustrating because Bundy's talking about that process, but you can't be sure. As many things he's talking about, you can't be sure um, how much he's changing the timeline, the context, you know, the exact examples. There's a feeling that he's talking about things that are true of himself, but he's having to put it, or he's choosing to put it in a false context. So, for example, he's talking about this desensitization or acclimatization process to becoming a killer as occurring in 1974, like he still had remorse during that those years, whereas <clears throat> an alternate version is by then he was already completely desensitized to remorse. Um, yeah, so I don't know if you have anything to add to that or if you've thought about that. That, that that process of self-transformation that Bundy was involved in and how much he's actually acknowledged it in his own, uh, you know, disclosures. It kind of uh, recalls the phenomena of, uh, of blooding uh, where, where, you know, a, a, a uh, individual who is going through this kind of uh, 
programming is hypothetically uh, uh, exposed to situations where they are are uh, with with human death and violence and everything. Of course, in the Navy programs that uh, George referred to, uh, that that uh, Dr. Thomas Narut uh, talked about at this NATO conference, uh, he he talked he mentioned that uh, they would force. Uh, the people, the these uh, subjects that they got out of military prisons to to uh, watch violent imagery, uh, imagery of executions, uh, you know, the pe- people being killed, and they would uh, very gruesome videos, and they would uh, force their eyes open, a la Clockwork Orange, and uh, force them to watch these these uh, videos and images to just desensitize them to the violence. And uh, one of the things that Dave pointed out is there's this pattern of uh, of uh, these uh, killer types, uh, or, or or at least the people who are who these crimes are attributed to, um, working in funeral homes, working in uh, morgues and uh, ambulance attendants and such, driving hearse, driving a hearse, uh, you know, kind of uh, they're maneuvered possibly into these positions where they're just uh, acclimatized to uh, to 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 uh, seeing death and violence. That's in addition to all the trauma inflicted in the home and in uh, many of these cases as well. You know, so you just get this pattern of uh, of uh, trauma and just conditioning uh, a violent outlook in the individual. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, and I think that there's. I mean, I think probably all of us, to some degree or another, have an experience of toughening up, of getting toughened up, which isn't necessarily negative that we do need to be toughened up and we don't want to be squeamish in life. And so we might find ourselves doing things. Oh, I just got chickens and I'm not planning to kill them. We've got them for eggs, but the idea of having chickens and killing them and eating them, I just ate a chicken yesterday, which I didn't kill. I'm not a vegetarian, um, but I do think that I should do my own killing in that regard. And so I would like to be desensitized enough, if you want to call it that, to be able to kill chickens and skin them and gut them and all the rest of it. I think that, that would be very healthy and natural. So you can see how that's a, uh, well, a slippery slope or a, co- a fairly pretty broad um, curve, if you will, or spectrum in which a person who was traumatized and who had already had to learn desensitization in order to survive and therefore had these kind of impulses and urges um, might want to just keep on going you know just become less and less sensitized and would feel and could convince themselves that they were becoming more and more functional at a sort of higher level as, as predators right you know the sort of idea that you know having this you know, having this compassion, having this moral code, it might be something that actually held you back from doing things that are simply the natural order of things, you know, that you can start to learn a different kind of outlook in life where this actually puts you above the rest of the world. And, you know, certain people may note that this kind of thinking, you know, you know, taken too far and applied to human life, you know, sometimes can be uncomfortably close to the doctrines that you would find in certain, you know, satanic, you know, certain satanic orders, you know, an idea that the pursuit of personal power, personal pleasure is paramount in your life, that, you know, this, that all, you know, all that really matters is power and, you know, the strong, you know, strong against the, the weak. And that that is what, you know, that is sort of the order of the, of human, of the human world as well. You know, that's sort of ideology, you know, have, I mean, it makes sense to have a right balance between 
personal empowerment, but taken to the point of personal empowerment with disregard for life outside of yourself becomes a potentially dangerous path to go down. And one that seems to show up in a lot of these uh, serial killer cases again and again. Mm. Yeah, and if Compassion. Uh, Compassion is the vice of kings, to quote uh, Alistair Crowley. Right. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's that is on on point. Absolutely. Because I was just going to say that um, if if a person becomes aware, and I'm thinking of my brother a lot in this conversation, he was interested in Ted Bundy. I don't know if any of you know much about him, but he he befriended this Glaswegian uh, muscle uh, collector. You know, what the technical term, but he would knock on people's doors and and meat you know attack them with a meat cleaver so they didn't have the money this kind of guy for the glaswegian mob jimmy Boyle. my brother got involved with him very young i mean in his early 20s and uh god only knows what that what jimmy Boyle introduced my brother to in terms of the way that the world works and this kind of hidden power hierarchy which has been superimposed onto nature um through society this is what i'm trying to get to that if you start to become aware, as, as no doubt Bundy did, that the most powerful people in the world, you know, within the human society that's, that's replaced nature, so to speak, um, the, most, the most craven acts are not only permitted, but, you know, characteristic. They're just part of that power, the way that that power is gained, the way that it's wielded and the way that it's maintained. So then it really does become a superimposition of the natural um, Darwinian principles, uh, a superimposition onto those natural ones with this artificial kind of uh, trauma-generated version, which is, um, yeah, like killing and maiming and dismembering women, for example. It's not just a perk for the pervert. It's also the central to the way that power is maintained to social engineering whether it's the drug trafficking uh, or, the, or the prostitution or the child pornography or the psyop of creating propaganda that maintains the populace in a meek and fearful state that is essential to maintaining social order right so all of, there's all of these different contexts in which that kind of predatorial behavior can be seen as not just the survival of the fit, fittest but yeah the vice of kings the way that the superior human beings rule over the inferior ones right and you know it is interesting in that context you know one of the things that i often think use when thinking about someone like ted bundy or a person like john Wayne gacy you know who both parallel each other in that they're you know, these sadistic serial killers who, you know, have a massive body count of their name, and yet you also find them in very politically connected circles. You know, Ted Bundy being an assistant, you know, part of the campaign for Governor Daniel Evans, you know, driving these, uh, even being a driver for some of these Washington State political figures. You know, Bundy would later win support from people like Ralph Monroe, the Secretary of State of Washington, you know, saying that he was innocent back in the early 70s when Bunny, or back in the 70s when Bunny was first on trial for this stuff. And, you know, similarly, John Wayne Gacy, a Democratic precinct captain in Chicago who, you know, was able to get access to photographs with uh, Jimmy Carter's wife, was, you know, had all of these, you know, had all these associations with prominent people in the city. And yet you see these people who, at the same time, you know, they're coveting power 
and yet they're also, you know, these mass killers. And of course, the people in power would like us to believe that, you know, these guys are aberrations. They are in no way representative of what, you know, respectable pillars of the community would actually do. But you see enough cases like the Franklin scandal, you know, all these, or Jeffrey Epstein, all these pedophile ring stories coming out and, you know, you piece together the fact that it keeps happening all over the, you know, from all over the years and all over different countries, whether they're talking about the Detroit affair in Belgium, the many scandals in the UK, and start to realize that maybe this isn't as much of a, you know, standout as much of a aberration that maybe this is what a lot of people in positions of power are actually like that, you know, this, you know, when you get to that level of control in the human, you know, in the hierarchy that it essentially does get you back to a very Darwinistic mode of thinking where, you know, everything, the reason you're able to ascend to that level is because you lose your moral scruples about taking, you know, and exploiting. And, you know, that can come at a society wide level with how you manage affairs, but also can come at a very interpersonal level with how you deal with individual people, especially dealing with someone who is, you know, weaker than you, how these people deal with children, you know, and like you said, how, I mean, how drug cartels will de- deal with, you know, deal with women and children, especially, you know, with all of these mass killings that you see, you know, that basically this is how power gets expressed. And in that context, you know, Ted Bundy or John Wayne Gacy, the serial killers, you know, are not, you know, really, you know, they are only a hair's breadth away from becoming res- seemingly respectable figures in the political world, you know, for whatever yeah. reason, by circumstances, they got caught and became these reviled mass killers who were supposedly way different, but they're not that different. They could very easily on a different path have become, you know, very widely respected uh, figures who you wouldn't have a hint of the darkness within. Yeah, yeah, that's, I think that's a great point because it, well, it more than implies that, and as I I do in my own writing, that, uh, and Bundy himself said the same, although he didn't put it in this context, but that, the the psychopaths or the monsters in quotes that we know about are the ones that were less successful, <laughs> right? And not just in terms of not getting caught, but in terms of what George is saying, that they were able to continue their ascent in the hierarchy of power. And maybe at a certain point they stopped murdering, but maybe they didn't. Um, who knows, right? It doesn't, it doesn't come out until it comes out. And even then you can't be sure. Um but um, so I'm wondering about Bundy now. And this is a question that's always been on my mind with Bundy or, or John Wayne Gacy, for that matter. You know, at what point is, was it just that they got caught, or was it something else? Were they chair like because Bundy got caught largely? It seems to me because of those weird double murders in '74, in which a guy looking like Ted Bundy went around trying to abduct women, saying, "Hi, my name's Ted." You know, so much for the super, you know, genius mastermind killer, right? It's just why is it yeah. Bundy? Some of the time is incredibly, unbelievably efficient in terms of getting away with these killers while he's holding a job you know or in co- in college living with a girl like how how the the kind of level of efficiency for somebody to get away with that um for for so many years on the one hand is juxtaposed with this rank inefficiency um that obviously doesn't add up um and then so then so then where was he caught or what was he set up 
to take the fall yeah. and if so at what point would he realize that and how much would he have to scramble like not knowing what what he's supposed to cop to you know what kind of story he's supposed to tell etc cetera, etc cetera. yeah i mean you raise a lot of good questions there and it's something that i have personally thought about for a while and you know based on trying to piece together some of the stuff in police files about what was going on in the pacific northwest then and you know ultimately came to my own sort of theory about it, which is, you know, the first of all, those murders that were happening in the Pacific Northwest in 1974, early 1974, that were said to be linked to, uh, linked to Ted Bundy, and, you know, the murders of uh, like, you know, Karen Sparks, uh, Linda Healy, Donna Gail Manson, Susan Marine Court, uh, you know, all the, you know, all these initial murders when they happened, you know, like you said, there were very little of a trail left behind. You know, they happened, you know, pretty much, you know, no witnesses, you know, these girls just completely vanished out of nowhere. Police had pretty much no leads whatsoever, you know, no solid leads at all. And, you know, this person was killing with incredible efficiency. And yeah, and then suddenly, you know, you end up in July of uh, mid-July at Lake Sammamish Park. And, you know, this guy suddenly becomes incredibly sloppy you know, is going around, you know, there in broad daylight on the same day that the police are having their local, uh, their annual picnic, which is also funny timing to go and commit two serial murders. But apparently that's what Ted does. And he does so and he introduces them and he talks to them under his own name and says, hi, I'm Ted. Can you help me out? Is certainly very bizarre. And, but what I personally think what's happening is that, uh, looking at the context of the investigation at the time, on June 26, uh, 1974, there was a statement that showed up in police files, basically talking about how a, about a lead involving a, a, cult, a cult, a sort of religious cult that had been involved in murdering these, uh, these women. Basically this guy, one of these police officers in Seattle PD had an informant who was talking about how, you know, I believe he had delivered drugs to this cult, you know, the hallucinogenic drugs, and that at this cult, they would, they would take these women, and they would be, you know, go through these rituals of dismembering them, hacking them up, and that, you know, the women who were disappearing throughout the Pacific Northwest, these were the ones who were being victimized by this cult. And so up until all the murders up through this point on June 26th, were done in relatively careful fashion, not leaving much of a trail at all. Suddenly, a couple weeks later, you have this massive trail that's you know being left. This almost guy is almost screaming to get caught. Mm. And so, one possible explanation of why this might happen is if somebody was tipped off as to the investigation getting a little bit too hot as to the existence of this cult. You know that maybe you know that there was a need to you know throw. But, you know, to make a very public statement indicating that this was, by, you know, no doubt this was a lone nut killer, you know, that up until that point, when there were no witnesses, all bets were off as far as what the possibilities were, you know, could very well have been one person, it could have easily been a group of people, there's no way of knowing because you have no clues in the investigation, really, and one of the major clues just told you, uh, you know, just told you, oh, yeah, it's a group of people, and so that investig, you could speculate that maybe that investigation had to be shuttered as soon as possible by introducing seemingly unassailable evidence that the killer was a person working alone and not only that but you now have a name to tie to the face and you know at the same time uh 
the descriptions that were there at the park, uh, you know, of the person at the park were a very poor match for Ted Bundy. They looked really nothing like him. You know, you can see the sketches, you know, it's like some guy with this, you know, light blonde hair. You really have no, if you look at it, you would not think that looks like Ted Bundy at all. So it seems possible, I mean, you know, that they were trying to create this idea of a lone killer, but not, you know, not giving enough away that would directly, you know, incriminate their, incriminate Ted Bundy, but at least give some kind of, you know, name, some kind of mon- identifiable monster to associate these killings with and get the heat off of this uh, cult connection that was being looked at. Well, in the Volkswagen too. So it seems as though even if they didn't actually want to create a trail hot enough for Bundy to get picked up right away, it seems as though he had been selected as the fall guy at that point. Yeah, or at least that there was a, you know, leaving it on the table that he could be, you right. know, because as you go through the rest of the crime, uh, you know, of the alleged crimes of Bundy, it does seem at some point, in my view, like the the way that he was treated kind of flipped in a sense, you know, in his very earliest trial uh, for the abduction of Carol Durant, uh, and this would be later on after the Utah series of crimes, he was actually... Uh, got a defense witness, uh, none other than Elizabeth Loftus, the yeah. you know yeah. memory expert, the false memory syndrome foundation luminary, who made all of these you know, in my opinion, kind of garbage studies about how you know about you know the propensity for people to have false memories. They're not saying that false memories are impossible, but the trying to apply them in scenarios where they didn't really make sense, and conveniently being called in for nearly any you know trial where you know spooks were at risk of being harmed you know she was i believe she was at oliver north trial she was at the uh i think she was at the scooter libby trial if i you know if i recall correctly she showed up all over the place and of course was also involved in discrediting memories of child abuse later on in the 80s and 90s so to have someone like her who appears to be a career intelligence asset in my opinion show up at the trial of ted bundy you know the first trial of Ted Bundy and being defending him. And then also to have all these people, like I said, Ralph Monroe, the secretary of state, uh, Marlon Vortman, who was running some sort of, uh, he was running some sort of, he was involved in defense contracting with Boeing. He was connected with Dan Evans as well. So having all these politically connected people who were, you know, out in support of Bundy, does imply that potentially, you know, there was some, at least some disagreement within the power structure at that time as to whether Bundy was a useful athlete who they wanted to keep or yeah. whether he was someone they wanted to throw under the bus. But, you know, certainly if Bundy was part of this, you know, sort of roving cult, which, you know, I, I'm about to go into a couple of reasons why I believe that was the case, you know, that certainly wanted to leave as many options open as possible for you know, if they needed to create a fall guy to you know have you know leave enough of a trail that they could where not immediately burning him in case they wanted to use him in the future and you know, as for the various reasons to believe you know the presence of a cult in these stories beyond just the statement and police files which i do think are compelling but you know on their own don't necessarily prove anything a couple other things pointing in that direction uh first of all this is actually something that Ann Rule talks about in her book, you know, that there was this some sort of you know, person who was writing to her while well, you know, well, she was following these cases in 1974, 
basically they were saying, you know, oh, I found this pattern, this sort of occult oriented pattern to the dates when these killings happen. Mm. And, uh, you know, based on your know, phases of the moon and Anne rule was like, oh, come on, this is garbage. You know, I don't believe this. And, uh, but what's interesting is that according to this, uh, this pattern that this person had developed, the next killing was scheduled to occur uh, sometime between July 13th and July 15th. And what do you know, the killings do occur on July 14th. So mm-hmm. this pattern, which you know seems like it could just be a fanciful thing on the face of it, actually turns out to be exactly right, which you know certainly is kind of interesting. And in addition to these initial statements at the time of the investigation in you know, June of 1974, there are a couple other things that later show up on the police's radar. First of all, this uh, thing, this sort of dossier that was being accumulated by the Seattle Police Department called File 1004, their collection of various leads on occult stuff that was happening in, uh, in the area. And they were getting various leads of this, this so-called Ted figure who was actually reported to be leading these cult meetings in the woods around Seattle. There was also an informant by the name of Thomas Creech. Uh, it was another serial killer who was caught in Idaho in late 1974. And after he was caught, he started making these statements about how he was an interstate killer who had killed people all across the country. And also that he was part of a you know, nationwide satanic network that would be getting these various murder contracts from biker gangs and organized crime groups and would be committing murders for hire. Uh, and he actually did, Thomas Creech's statements did lead to at least nine bodies in various states being discovered. So there was some validity to his status as a serial killer. But anyway, he described, you know, part of Thomas Creech's claims were that there, uh, throughout, I believe throughout early 1974, he was part of a cult that was abducting women around you know, the Seattle area. It would be abducting them, taking them to their cult headquarters and committing ritual murders of them, which coincides quite a bit with the statements that were in police files at the time. And of course, these statements were not publicized at the time that Thomas Creech was making his own statements. Additionally, Thomas Creech did, in fact, uh, he did describe a room uh, in King County that he claimed was the site of one of these cult killings. And the police actually found human blood in one of these rooms, but the Seattle police homicide captain still said, oh, well, this room was too small for these rituals to take place. And you know, I don't really get what that's supposed to mean, didn't really elaborate on what that means. But I'd say the fact that Thomas Creech was naming real places, naming real people, and that there was blood found at this house is pretty uh, compelling in its own right. So you have a lot of overlapping statements that are all pointing to the same sort of picture of this uh, cult that was operating in the Pacific Northwest, potentially involving this so-called Ted figure as a leading member of this cult. And uh, yet all that gets brushed under the rug because you have this very careless, out-of-character carelessness at Lake Smalmish on July 14th, 1974, that solidifies in the mind of nearly everyone that, oh, it's just this Ted guy. He's the one who's behind it, and it's just him. Really does uh, have the... Uh feeling of, uh, you know, these incidents around uh, Lee Harvey Oswald, where you have uh, an individual who, who uh, introduces themselves as Oswald and seems to do everything uh, in their power to ensure that they will be remembered uh, at a certain place, uh, making 
comments or in a situation that is incriminating, you know, kind of at this time when the investigators are looking at the cult angle, you know, that the, there is this uh, apparent attempt to fabricate a trail of evidence. And yeah, that was one of the uh, only uh, facts uh, that detracted from the official version that the uh, Netflix piece acknowledged. They kind of acknowledged it in passing that uh, that the witnesses and the sketches didn't uh, really match Bundy at all. Because this is an example of how much more difficult our work is than Netflix work. As in, the more the more evidence, the more closely you look at the evidence, the harder it is to make a, a, a the kind of narrative coherence that would sati- that satisfies um, a mind that's been trained by you know movies and TV shows. That wasn't too garbled a sentence, right? We we we, we like to find tidy narratives as quick as possible. And, you know, the mass media provides them, as we said at the start, but but looking at Ted Bunny, I mean, this is one of the things that has 
that I've stumbled over, it, it isn't easy to determine whether he was being set up or whether he was being protected. It seems like it was both. So like within within a period of, of a year, um, we have this, what we just talked about, this apparently sloppy behavior where Ted identifies himself by, by you know, making these two abductions back to back, et cetera, et cetera. And then um, also with the Carol DeRanche thing, that that seems, I mean, those two, that attempted abduction and then the abduction of Deborah Jean Kent on the same day, which as George and others have pointed out, is pretty much physically impossible that he could have been there at both scenes. Um, that, that happened too. So that looks like a setup also. But then, as George pointed out, when it when it comes to trial, there is you know, somebody like Elizabeth Loftus is there, so there's some attempt to, to protect Bundy, but but not a very concerted one because the kind of evidence that that you or I can dig up easily enough, you know, fifty years later wasn't wasn't introduced at the trial, like the Carol Durant thing. What was that like? That seems as though if, if the key from the handcuff was found on the scene at the uh, uh, Fairview, Utah, you know, the school play where Deborah Kent went missing, um, then somebody must have planned, either it was one, you know, the same guy, which we're saying is probably physically impossible, or somebody planted a key, for example. I mean, I don't want to confuse people who are not familiar with any of this with all these details, but the overriding point is I'm making is that it's, it's, uh, it's really hard to say whether somebody was out to get Bundy, somebody in power, or the power structures were protecting him because it seems as though both both things were happening simultaneously. Yeah, yeah I'm inclined to uh, agree that it. Uh, I've, I've theorized uh, that that there could have been, uh, you know, a different uh, factions at work that were kind of uh, in disagreement over. Bundy's uh, fate have uh, further speculated and don't have any direct proof beyond all of the mystery around Bundy's family that this could have possibly uh, had some relationship to uh, to um, his his uh, his his family background you know bloodline plays a uh, important role in many of these cults multi-generational cults uh, you know Bundy as Bundy's uh, friend uh, slash true crime author and rule uh, had uh, referenced how Bundy and uh, she and Bundy had uh, uh, many times, not once, but many times uh, uh, had uh, lived in the same uh, states uh, growing up prior to their uh, officially meeting. Uh, uh, and and uh, they, they talked about the hidden hand in their lives, you know, that it's uh, guiding them and everything. So I think, you know, you, you, you might be dealing with uh, multi-generational type uh, satanism or something along those lines and and uh, if so you might have a case where bundy's uh, family background uh, was uh, was tied to very powerful interests and that made it uh, certain uh, certain power factions perhaps were loyal to him another another uh, really bizarre kind of uh, element of the case were these uh, were these uh, prison or jail breaks yeah. uh, you know that that uh, to two of them you know and and uh, particularly what happened afterward where he is finding cars that have the he finds a car that has a the keys in the ignition he, you know he sees he just locates in the woods this uh 
this uh, sh- uh, house in the woods that is fully stocked with uh, water and food and everything, you know, like can, you know, a, possibly a safe house, you know, and it seems like uh, there's there's uh, one hidden hand is uh, fabricating the case against him while one hidden hand is fabricating the case against him. Another hidden hand is uh, kind of seemingly protecting him and aiding him. And, you know, it's uh, that that does create a very, uh, very uh, uh, murky picture of the case. Mm. Yeah. And something else, you know, in addition to that as well, you know, the hidden hand, uh, another example of that, which is kind of interesting and also in my view, pointing to the idea that Bundy was part of a larger picture involved in these murders was something that was talked about in a, uh, in a people, you know, this people magazine article from back in like 1979, back at the time when Bundy, you know, was still facing some of it, you know, some of the trials for murder, I think he was still he was on trial for Ky- the Kyle Omega murders in Florida at the time, and so the narrative had not really settled down yet to the point where everyone universally believed that Bundy was guilty. There were still some journalists asking questions about you know whether the evidence really connected him to all these murders, and one in particular, a journalist, a TV journalist in Seattle named Ruth Walsh, uh, had actually been going around getting case files from all these different cases and you know, Pacific Northwest and Utah and Colorado and comparing them and looking at alternative suspects. And one of the interesting things she found out was that there was at least one other suspect who not only was in the Pacific Northwest at the same time that Bundy was uh, and actually, you know, and became, you know, would be a possible suspect in those murders. But then at the same time that, you know, Bundy supposedly goes to Aspen, Colorado, and commits the murder of Karen Campbell, although there are many doubts about that too, as we hopefully get into later. This individual is also there in Aspen working in the same uh, resort where Karen Campbell is staying and gets murdered. So, you know, it's one thing to have, you know, an alternate suspect who is, you know, in the same place for one series of murders, but what are the odds that this alternate suspect then ends up moving to the same place at the same time as this other murder later on that's linked to Bundy. You know, that sort of weird coincidence. And this, this guy, by the way, I do name him on CapDef. His name is Hugh Joseph Michael Tamos, last name T-E-M-O-S. And, you know, the idea that this guy is you know, going to the same hot spot where Bundy supposedly is involved at the same time almost speaks to, you know, a spe- very speculative possibility on my part, but a possibility that I considered is, you know, perhaps there was some element that wanted Bundy to be protected. And so they were getting this sort of hapless guy to, you know, follow Bundy's crimes around so that, you know, if they needed to make this interstate serial killer, they could be like, oh yeah, it was Tamos and close the case with him and protect their more valuable asset Bundy. You know, Tamos was had a history of sort of mental instability, would be very overtly propositioning women at this resort in Aspen. He would notice he would like be, you know, I believe you know, drinking his own urine. He was, uh, you know, people in prison, you know, people who knew him at the uh, at his work would say he was not playing with the full deck. He clearly had, you know, some kind of mental imbalance and in some ways would be a very desirable patsy to hang this stuff on and uh, you know, then leave you know leave Bundy for future work. So that's another you know example of, like Thomas alluded to, potentially multiple factions at play playing different games with each other. You know, some of them wanting to use Bundy as a fall guy, others setting up other fall guys. And really, in my opinion, 
all cards were on the table as far as what could happen. You know, that there was, you know, depending on how the wind blew, depending on how the situation went, if they needed to throw Bundy to the wolves, they would, but they weren't going to, out of their way to do it unless it had to be done. Of course, the other, another element is Bundy's own. I mean, he's he has some autonomy, right? He he has some individual existence, so his own uh, competency is def- is yeah. definitely a factor in this. Because and then that would also determine how much of an asset he was, and you know, he would be constantly being reevaluated in terms of whether he was worth protecting or not. Uh, so it was occurring to me as well, like the the idea that he he somebody must have looked the other way when he jumped out the window of a courthouse or right? he just kind of walked away from that scene um so clearly he had there was some complicity in that I and mean, there's even you know the the police chief at the time uh retired soon after or quit so there's there's definitely some evidence there that there was some uh you know involvement of the authorities in helping him get away and then the cabin but none of that led to anything because he just apparently just got disorientated and he got caught, you know, two or three days later. So what was that? You know, if he had help getting away, uh, he, he fucked up, right? And then they, maybe they were extremely yeah. pissed off about that. Like, come on, Ted, how many strings do we have to pull for you? And I don't know. Right. How- well, the other thing at the time, too, you know, and, and I mean, like you say, the, ha- Bundy having autonomy is certainly an important point to highlight because I do believe that as this as things went on Bundy probably did become cognizant of the idea that he was being set that he was being set up by force around him that he was certainly not being helped you know in Colorado uh you know one point he actually you know I believe he tried to get rid of his appointed public defenders and represent himself you know seemingly thinking that these people who were supposed to be the advocates were not actually on his side. Uh, but one of the other major things to, one of the other major things to come out of Colorado, and this gets into probably one of the most revealing aspects of the Bundy case is, uh, you know, the Colorado, the Colorado trial almost became a disaster for the state, honestly, just based on how their narrative completely collapsed in the pretrial hearing. You know, that they supposedly had the star witness, a woman by the name of Elizabeth Harder, who was able to, you know, supposedly was able to identify Ted Bundy as being at the resort, uh, at the Snowmass Resort, you know, at the Wildwood Inn, being right by the elevator, right around the time that Karen Campbell was going to the elevator to go back to her room. And supposedly, you know, she would testify and identify Bundy. They bring her into the courtroom ask her to point out who she saw. And instead of pointing to Ted Bundy, she points to the undersheriff of the county, you know, the second in command of the sheriff's office in Aspen, Colorado, a man by the name of Ben Myers. And this, you know, basically means your star witness, who was pretty much the only solid evidence you had in the case, is now useless. And you could argue at that point that uh, a, a significant element in the state did not actually want it to go to trial, you know, that there was a very good chance that they would lose if they did. And that maybe that was a part of the reason why Bundy had to be allowed to escape as well, to avoid the embarrassment of losing this trial. And, you know, also potentially to avoid the embarrassment of seeing where following the Ben Myers connection would lead. Mm-hmm. Because as I've written, as I've written about on CavDef, uh, Ben Myers has quite the interesting history 
because before he was the under sheriff of Pitkin County, uh, Colorado, where Aspen is, he was the former police chief of Grand Junction, Colorado, which is like right at the western portion of the state, right at the border with Utah. And at, while he was the police chief of Grand Junction, Colorado, the city was rocked by a series of uh, murders where you know, throughout the year 1975, a ton of the a ton of young women were turning up murdered in various ways, uh, you know, pretty much all throughout the state. It was a, it was literally called the killing season that year just because of how bad it gotten and how much people were living in fear over it. And you know, really, when you really investigate these murders, you know, at an individual level, you, know, you start to see patterns between the killings that happened in Grand Junction. You know, that all these women were involved to some degree in the drug traffic. You know, many of them, I mean, at the very least, were users, but also a lot of them were involved in the drug on the dealing end. And uh, one of them, a woman by the name of Linda Benson, who was killed in July of 1975, actually made statements the effect that she knew who the quote big shots unquote in Grand Junction were the high level people in the city who were responsible for dealing drugs were and you know she said like if only you knew who they were and then she ends up being uh she ends up being murdered along with her five-year-old daughter a month later a friend of Linda Benson's by the name of Linda Miracle uh Linda Miracle who not only has this history you know has this history with drugs but also have a history of sexual liaisons with a lot of local police officers in Grand Junction, a ton of, you know, very prominent cops on, you know, on her, a sort of list. And she actually kept a list of, she actually kept a list of people who she had liaisons with. And this, her boyfriend uh, who worked for the local sheriff's office actually stole this book from her, throw it in, threw it in the river, uh, the Gunnison River. And so she, who was in the position of knowing a possibly knowing too much, she and her friend, uh, her neighbor across the street, a woman named Pat Botham, basically, you know, she, Pat and Linda Miracle were basically said to one of their, some of their friends, we're about to come forward with news that will shock the whole town. And then like a week later, they're brutally murdered. And, uh, you know, this trend just continued throughout that year. You know, a babysitter for both Linda Miracle and Linda Benson, named Tracy Freitas, turned up and dead in a pond of a, of a drug overdose. Earlier that year, a woman named Denise Oliverson of Grand Junction, she was killed and her body's never been found. Supposedly, Ted Bundy did it, although the evidence for that is very thin. And then at the end of that year, uh, a young woman named Deborah Tomlinson, who had was involved by various police reports in the drug, according to various police reports, involved in the local drug trade who had a father, who had an uncle who was apparently trying to get her to sell marijuana, whose father was reportedly being targeted by the mafia, and she claimed that they'd even tried to run her and her dad off the road. She ends up being murdered in her bathtub. Uh, like, and by the way, a Grand Junction police officer who has a history, who had a history of murdering, you know, shooting civilians to death by the name of Dave Schumacher happened to live in the apartment right above, right above, uh, Deborah Tomlinson. So basically, there's a whole massive scandal of this, you know, of all these women who were involved in the same sort of apparent criminal enterprise in that city who are turning up murdered, some of them even indicating that they have knowledge of what's happening, who are clearly being targeted by an organized crime element before their death. And Ben Myers is seemingly sitting at the apex of it all. There were accounts, you know, reports flowing through town that he had secret bank accounts, that he was taking payoffs 
to allow drug and prostitution networks to run, uh, that he was in the sort of local clique with a couple other people, like the local district attorney, one of the judges who were all involved in this drug and sex usage, that Ben Myers himself was partying with some of these women before they ended up being murdered, and all sorts of very troubling claims about a very decadent culture in the city of Grand Junction are coming out. And uh, Ben Myers leaves right at the right of this heating up. He actually leaves due to a scandal where he was buying an underage girl drinks at a bar and then threatening a, a cop who saw him doing this and basically saying, like, you're fired if you tell anyone about this. So this is the guy who will, would be identified as the you know, possible suspect in Karen Campbell's murder instead of Ted Bundy. And if that was investigated, you know, that could have been a very, very substantial risk to the, the powers, you know, the local sort of cliques, the organized crime networks in the state of Colorado. And that itself may have been a powerful motive to, you know, allow Bunny to escape, to get it tossed as soon as possible. And from some uh, firsthand investigation that I've, you know, done, find it, you know, developing sources in Colorado, there's actually one uh, former cop uh, from Grand Junction, now deceased, but he apparently uh, got, he apparently got, you know, some of Ted Bundy's cell bars from the jail during Bundy's escape attempt and actually, you know, said that Ted Bundy's cell bars have been cut from the outside, you know, using some sort of, uh, using some sort of implement. And this is not anywhere in the official narrative whatsoever. You know, there's no indication of Bundy's cell bars being cut from the outside. You never hear about that in any official story, but here's a cop who says it happened and has, apparently has Bundy's cell bars in his possession and is saying that. And this, so that in itself, you know, although it needs more investigation, more corroboration on my part to, you know, piece together exactly what, how that fits in, you know, there are clues that are very obscure, but still there pointing to Bundy absolutely being assisted by people at the jail and making sure that he was allowed to escape. I hadn't heard about any cell bars being cut, just about the hole in the in the ceiling. Yeah, yeah, this is only, I mean, yeah, this is honestly only something that I, you know, turned up through some of the Colorado work that I've been doing. It still needs to need to publish this in the future. It was a, a very, very interesting experience of mine all around. But yeah, there's there certainly is, you know, a lot pointing to, you know, what's happening in Colorado especially is probably the biggest indicator of Bundy being a sort of, you know, cover for crimes that were most likely being committed by actual, by, by local sort of mafia, local organized crime activity that intersected with local law enforcement. You know, the victim, Karen Campbell, I should note, was actually the sister of a Fort Lauderdale police officer. And Fort Lauderdale had a big drug trafficking pipeline to uh, to Colorado, you know, to Western Colorado, especially at that time. So, you know, once again, there's the indication that some of these crimes that are allegedly done by Bundy may in fact be a more targeted in nature and that Bundy is ultimately being used to, as a fall guy to dissuade from looking at the real connections to, uh, to these murders. And he, so he was arrested in Colorado in August, uh, of 75, and the, la- the last murder that he was accused of was June, the end of June. And then, of course, he was in jail for a couple of years before he escaped in 77. So so he's saying that during that period, like post-August 75, the kind of murders that Bundy was accused of were continuing. 
yeah, like basically the murders in uh, the murders that were occurring in Grand Junction, yes, were happening in August, you know, happening in August of that, in August of that year, after Bun- a week after Bundy was arrested in right. Utah, happening in yeah December of that year. So yeah, I mean, murders that could have been linked to Bundy. In fact, I now that you mention it, there was talk of, uh, there was talk, of, you know, people were thinking, oh, could Bundy have done the murder of Pat Botham and uh, Linda Miracle? But of course, he was incarcerated at that time. So that was dismissed. But it does show the extent to which people, you know, do speculate along those lines and try to make the connection. But yeah, I mean, young women turning up murdered in Western Colorado, uh, you would think, you know, they would fit the profile, except for the fact that he obviously couldn't have done it. And what's interesting too, is that there are more, uh, some more direct, some more direct connections to between Bundy and the Grand Junction murders, actually, you know, first of all, yes, you know, he, he did, uh, He's a, a tr- the murder of Denise Oliverson, which was the first of these large series of murders in Grand Junction, was attributed to uh, Ted Bundy. As to whether he really did it, there's really not real not anything beyond his his alleged confession. And even whether he made a confession is in dispute. Different news articles say one news article said that Bundy did not confess to Denise Oliverson's murder. Uh, other news articles said that he did. So there's even dispute there. But then, you know, going on later, uh, the murder of Linda Benson actually has a witness at the scene who insisted that they saw Ted Bundy there with a guy by the name of Steve Goad, who, you know, saw some weird guy at the apartment complex where Linda Benson lived on the night of her murder, and then later saw news about Ted Bundy and was like, oh, wow, that's, that's my guy. That's who I saw. Hmm. So there's, and of course, you know, there's officially Bundy has nothing to do with this murder. But because he was in jail, well, he was actually he was only incarcerated a month later. He could have been involved in the Linda Benson murder because that was in July of 1975. But there certainly is not in anywhere in the official story that that mentions Bundy. Yet you have a statement in police files pointing to him potentially being at the scene, at the very least. So you know that this there's this absolutely this uh, this sort of weird. The connections where not only does not only does uh, Ben Myers Ben Myers shows up in this one crime you know of Karen Campbell that is supposedly linked to Bundy, then you have Bundy showing up in these crimes in Grand Junction, both Neith Oliverson and Linda Benson that are seemingly linked to Myers. And even weirder, another one of Bundy's alleged murders in Colorado was a, mur- a murder of Julie Cunningham in Vail, Colorado, in March of 1975, and in. Uh, Julie Cunningham was good friends with a woman who was a daughter of a Salem, Oregon cop by the name of Jim Sto- Jim Stovall. Jim Stovall was famous for uh, solving the you know solving the so-called uh, the shoe fetish serial killer out in Salem back in uh, you know back in I believe the uh, it was the late '60s when it happened. Jerome Brudos he solved this case alongside a partner named Jerry Frazier out there in Salem and uh, you know, one accommodations for it and everything. Well, what's interesting is that the former police chief of Salem, when this was happening, when the Jerome Brutus case happened was none other than Ben Myers before he was the police chief of Grand Junction. Ben Myers was the police chief of Salem and Jim Stovall and Jerry Frazier were two relatively high level detectives working directly under Ben Myers. Uh, and then 
later on, Jerry Frazier actually moves to join the Grand Junction Police Department at the same time that uh, that Ben Myers moves there. And then, of course, you have Jim Stovall having that connection, his indirect connection to one of Ted Bundy's alleged victims. So this this same this whole pipeline of people moving from the Pacific Northwest to Colorado, you know, Bundy and Myers sort of mirror each other in that sense as well, and they seem very interlinked with each other's crimes, in a you know potential crimes in an odd circumstantial sense that absolutely points to Bundy being part of this bigger crime network. You know that he is moving around, you know, to be in the right position where these murders happen, and yet you have other suspects who can be tied to them as well. You know, indicating you know maybe that Bundy is either part of a team that's behind these murders or even, you know, that Bundy is being moved around so that he can be plausibly set up as a fall guy later on if need be, you know, but that, the sort of, you know, coincidence piling on top of coincidence and how all these people are showing up in the same proximity of each other at the same time just gets to a mind bending level in the Ted Bundy case. And, you know, is not automatic direct proof of something on its own, but is so circumstantially weird that you can't help but, wonder if there's something you know much deeper going on than this just this lone marauding killer traveling around 